If you hunt enough, you learn the truth. What you seek speaks a language and knows it well. That's why every Primo's call for everything you hunt is made the right way. We sweat every detail so you get more out of every hunt and nothing leaves our hand until we know it'll work in yours. Because we don't just make the world's best calls, we speak the language. Primo's. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. episode 205 of the fly fishing consultant podcast this episode is brought to you by filson filson established in 1897 is the leading outfitter and manufacturer of unfailing goods for outdoor enthusiasts built upon a reputation for liability they are a favorite among anglers and hunters engineers and explorers mariners miners and anyone who refuses to stay indoors i have the filson rotomolded cooler and I will tell you, it takes a while to figure out how to keep everything cold. You don't just throw ice in those things. You've got to chill them down first and have cold beverages when you put them in there. There's definitely a science to using a roto-molded cooler. Filson will be reopening their D.C. store on 14th Street, hopefully by the end of the summer. Stay tuned to my podcast and social media so I can let you know about the opening party. and We'll be doing a live podcast from the new store. In this episode, I interview Drew Chacon from Fort Myers, Florida. We're going to talk about all things fly tying. We are going to learn about what happens when you bump into a snook with a boat. We're going to learn some fly tying hacks. We're going to learn about E6000, how to organize your fly tying room, protect yourself from the sun, and what goes on in the mind of a creative fly designer. So this is 205 Drew Chacon. All right, so we have with us Drew Ciccone. Am I pronouncing that right? Ciccone, yep. Close enough. I I get a lot worse, trust me. All right. And you are in West South Florida? I'm in Fort Myers, uh, uh, so Southwest Florida, um, right next to Sanibel Captiva. And have you grown up there? Is that where you've been your whole life? 
No, not at all. I grew up in the Finger Lakes in upstate New York or central New York, Watkins Glen. And uh, I came here in about 2003, I guess, and then had a hiatus a few years ago in Scottsdale for my wife's job. But uh, the vast majority of the last decade, I've been in Fort Myers, Florida. All right. What made you all choose Fort Myers? Um, The company I was with uh, was trying to expand, and they sent me down to set up operations um, in Florida, and they let me choose kind of Fort Lauderdale or Fort Myers. I got to pick a coast. And uh, for me, it was all about the fishing, so it was easy. You know, um, I, I did a lot of research, and inshore was what I wanted to do, so this is where I ended up. So what sort of research did you do? I guess if you want to go offshore, you need a boat. Is that one of the main things? Well, I, I just think it was a, a lot sleepier here compared to Lauderdale. So, you know, as far as flats fishing, tarpon, bone or uh, redfish, and snook, um, this coast isn't quite as crazy as the other coast for, you know, big boats and things like this. There's still a lot of skinny water stuff over here that's not as uh, blown out, I would say. All right. Not as much pressure. Where did you go to, did you go undergrad before you uh, left New York? I did. I went to Hartwick in uh, uh, Oneonta, New York. Anything you studied then that helps you today? Business. So um, I think entrepreneurship was pretty much my focus by the end of the my senior year. And, you know, the my uh, I, I started pre-med. Um, that's why everything you see is dr chacon on instagram and my email and all that back in the day and that's where i got my my emails and stuff i just never changed any of it and then as i continued uh, drew was always taken so i just kept a dr well we can call you doc for short now yeah i guess yeah. my <laughs> dog's first name is doctor and he didn't go to any school so well yeah take what you can get right absolutely someone in the family had to have a phd so i gave it to him How long have you been married? Coming up on 12 years. Right on. And your wife is supportive with all of this? Oh, yeah. She's really big into hunting and fishing as well. Awesome. Um, So we do a lot together. We just got back from Argentina for our 11-year anniversary. We went down and did a cast and blast at Pira Lodge and shot a bunch of doves and caught some golden dorado and some other cool species. So any chance we get when we're traveling, we try to get a hunting or fishing trip in. All right. Any kids? Any pets? Any things you've acquired oh, yeah. out fishing that you brought home and put in tanks? <laughs> well, right now I've got a daughter that's going to be seven, Lucy, right. and um, a dog named Orvis and one named Hazel. Short of that, that's about it for pets and kids. What's your daughter into besides YouTube? <laughs> you nailed that. Yeah, I don't get um, it. My daughter yeah, doesn't even a- know we have a TV that gets stations. Kids YouTube is, is like, uh, probably the most difficult, like, time suck we have. I mean, if you can pry her away from that thing and, uh, the iPad, uh, she likes, she likes fly time sometimes. I mean, that's kind of her, uh, her excuse to stay up late. She'll come in and waffle me, you know, 10 minutes before bedtime and say, Daddy, can we tie a fly? She knows the answer's always going to be yes, so she gets another half hour out of that, but, but, 
normal normal daylight hours i guess she's into like uh dolls bitty babies or i don't i'm not real sure what's going on most of the time we've got the lol surprises she, she's really she really likes musicals and singing there we go oh yeah lol i've heard that before yeah yeah we have those all over our house if i could just get her outside more she's uh basically translucent she's the whitest white kid in the world oh, no. so we live in southwest florida which makes it difficult she's slathered in like 100 uh sunscreen all the time and so she hates being outside heading so it's an act of congress to get her on the boat but usually when she's out there and got the rash guard on and the oversized hat we can uh, keep her in the water for a while but yeah we do uh absolute rash guard for our daughter it just saves on sunscreen and having to reapply it just at the pool it makes my oh, life yeah. much easier it's, uh, it's unbelievable so when did you get into fishing? Uh, I think I've been fishing for as long as I can remember. It's my, my first memory of my father sitting on the dock and on Seneca Lake trying to catch rock bass and perch with, you know, worms and minnows and stuff, little picking up crayfish underneath rocks and trying to entice the, the bass that live underneath the dock. So pre- pretty much the whole, the whole deal. Fly fishing came later, but fishing definitely my whole life. When did you make that transition from throwing those crayfish and other things to deciding you were going to throw something tied to a hook that wasn't alive, made out of feathers and I think probably around the age of five or six, I found my parents' fly tying kit. Um, We lived in upstate New York, which was frozen about eight months out of the year. So um, in the basement, my parents had you know one of those sewing kits and the old school cork board with the vice stuck in it and a few tools stuck in it um they started when they were 19 for something to do taking fly time lessons together I so i have my mom's notes like handwritten notes it wasn't it wasn't even pictures it was like her like scribblings of like making wraps around the hooks and how to whip finish and things and um I don't know. I mean, I uh, I think I, they had that one art flick book, the old one. Um, but short of that, um, I just kind of poked around, found that stuff, and started just lashing stuff down to hooks. I think probably I got my first fly rod right after that. Um, and I still did, you know, every kind of fishing I, I could do. But um, I think I started, started right around six or seven. So that old anti-drug commercial i learned it from watching you oh yeah and the kids yeah. got dad's got the cigar box that's that's you and fly time that's crazy from watching yeah. you dad yeah Any- and yeah i think my first fly was like a number 12 mosquito the largest mosquito known to man i thought until i moved to florida it's the state bird <laughs> that's it yeah they'll carry you away and split you up nice. were any non-family members mentors to you oh yeah um when I moved to Florida, I was lucky enough to meet Eric Leiser. Um, he lived over the bridge in Cape Coral, and Eric had written, I think, 12 books, um, The Orvis Guide to Fly Tying, and at, at the time, I was working at Bass Pro teaching the Wednesday night class to kids, and he kind of rolled in and his plaid pants and sat down and no one knew who he was he was i think in his early 80s then maybe late 70s but yeah he started uh he 
started tying and I knew right away that he was like Jedi and figured out who he was. And then after that, we started tying together and he helped me out for years until he, uh, he started to get dementia and I have, you know, then it kind of dwindled from there. But for years, he, uh, he taught me just one, one uh, session with him was like a, a college course. It was unbelievable how much knowledge that man had. Um, for materials and techniques. Um, he always told me when you get into writing um, and you want to do a book, you have to do it as if there were no pictures. So he would explain things um, in such clarity. So when you did have the picture, it was easy, but that was his, his technique. Yeah, he made me promise that he'd, he'd teach me whatever he could, but the promise I had to make to him, that was, there was no secrets. So if anyone asked me how to do something, I always had to share it. So that's pretty much been the epigenesis of, of what I do since I got into tying and teaching. Um, how, how long did you two have together before he was unable to keep going? Probably uh, three, four years at least. Um, did he know he was on decline? Yeah. things got a little hairy one time he came over for a we were doing an article for him and he was doing a photo shoot um we were going to take a picture of him for the article and he stepped off of the the bottom step of my porch and just went face first into the pool but he didn't know that he was falling so it was it was almost as if yeah it was slow it was slow motion the other guy we were with was mortified because his feet never never went in uh into the pool they stayed on the side so you know i kind of chuckle about it now but at the time i was terrified we were trying to drag him out of the pool but his feet were on the deck still uh man yep we had uh he, he was amazing one of the last flies he tied he had um maculate really bad and one of the last flies he tied, he did like a silhouette Adams, but he never looked at the vice. And I still have it. And I mean, it's it's so perfect. But he 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 main he, you know he obviously was trying to look out of the side of his vision, but he he was staring at me, talking to me, and his hands were moving. But it he he it wasn't like he was focusing on the details or what he was doing. He just done so many of them that it was just second nature amazing and and re- recently um i would say that the biggest influence for me as a mentor is steve bailey i don't know if you're familiar with him but steve's an, another jedi tire he did all the flies for lefty um anytime lefty wrote an article or um, you know had presentation flies steve was actually the tire that did those really? for him mm-hmm. steve bailey and he lives here yep he lives here in uh, Fort Myers as well. I've put him in several of my books and written a few articles about him. He's he's just unbelievable. He um he was on Walker's K Chronicles with Flip a few times too. Okay. Yep. You can Google him or ch- yeah, check him out on the Hell's Bay site. Um, there's a few. One they did in Ding Darling uh, for Redfish. Um, off Wolfert Key, that was pretty amazing. I mean, it's right in my backyard, so it's it's pretty cool. What point did you or these other guys say to you, or you realize this is something I'm just I'm like I'm good. I, I've got a gift for the tying. When did that become apparent? 
Did they notice you know, it? Did you notice it? Was I think it was more of a passion than a gift. You know, I, I just I really liked it, and I got ate up with it. And you know, I do was just researching and reaching out to people for information, and just kind of absorbing and sponging as much as I could from people that were better than I was or were willing to share. And you know, I I, I remember the first article I wrote was in. Um, the name of that magazine is defunct fly fishing in salt waters and they one of my buddies saw a fly that i tied and said you know you should really write a how-to on that and i remember just kind of laughing out loud like there's there's just no way i'm not a writer at all um and he said oh you know you you tie it and i'll help you with the photos and you know we'll, we'll get an article and submit it and see what they think and that was kind of the start of it. But at the time, I remember thinking, that why would I do that? There's just, you know, there's there's no way that I have the ability to write or, you know, why would anybody pick it up from a magazine? So it was kind of, kind of foreign when they did. And now you've got enough books to fill shelves. Yeah, I'm on book 11 now. I just finished the, la- the last three or 900 pages are in a set. Yeah, we'll get, I think we can get um, to those in a bit. Yeah, yeah, they're, uh, but yeah, I've got, I've, yeah, now I, I guess I'm a full-blown writer, but it snuck up on me for sure. It's pretty cool. Uh, where do you fish if you got a day off, if you're allowed to say? Uh, my favorite place is probably Sanibel. Um, either walking the beach uh, this time of year, looking for snook if the water's not super blown out or turned over uh you know cloudy um a lot of times i'm in uh on a paddleboard in the clusahatchee river or some of the creeks around here or ding darling the uh, nature preserve on sanibel is one of my favorite places too Did you say ding darling yeah like ding um he was a naturalist oh, okay yeah yep so it's a it's a nature preserve on sanibel again i can't question people's names I, I lost yeah. that right with, with my name. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Someone referred to my wife as Mrs. Snow White the other day. She's like, hey, that's not my name. <laughs> She's like, I'm Mrs. I miss Altman. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you, so you just got back from Argentina. Are there some bucket list destinations you still want to go to? Oh, yeah. It's never ending. Um, I still want to do uh, somewhere for rooster fish, you know, Baja or one of those places, the running down the man scenario mm-hmm. i would i would love to to do an on fly from the beach um seychelles i guess if i only had one uh, saint brandon's atoll or um one one of those um christmas islands high on the list i'd i'd love to do new new zealand um australia uh where else there's just so many places now oman i've heard a lot about that uh Basically, everything in the Yellow Dog catalog I'm interested right. in. <laughs> All right. Maybe they can pick you up as their official writer. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Do what I can. What about species? you got rooster fish on there. Yep. Any other species that you've not caught that you still want to? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, GT is up there. I'd like to do all the billfish on fly. Um, I have not done a billfish yet. I've gone on an awful lot of trips, but, you know, the standard, you should have been here yesterday. Um, yeah. Oh, what else? Um, and what are the normal species? So you got snook down there. 
maybe tarpons. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that will draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. Oh, yeah. Snook, tarpon, redfish, permit. So you have um, other people's bucket list items in, in your neighborhood. Oh, yeah. They're all backyard fish here. Backyard uh, fish? Yeah. You get I in those little canals? Yeah, I live on a little creek, and up until about two weeks ago, and it got warm, and they let the water out. I was catching probably five-pounders in the backyard, little tarpon and Damn. snook. Yeah, Every once in a while, we get a redfish, but... We have minnows um, in our creek. You have what? Just minnows. Oh, yeah. Okay. Pretty, pretty tiny creek where we are. Well, it's at least you're on the water, right? Uh, I mean, it's you couldn't get your ankles wet if you walked through part of it. It's <laughs> tiny. <laughs> mosquito. Uh... Yeah, it's pretty much mosquito infestation. Yeah, I bet. Let's see. What else have I got on my list of fishing questions? Uh, you have rod and reel preferences that you use? Absolutely. So G Loomis for rods all the way. Um, I like the the short sticks for when I'm kind of combat fishing these little creeks and canals and stuff. The Asquiths, the NRXs, uh, they've got a bunch of new stuff coming out as well. Um, but, you know, I've been fishing the, the short sticks for quite some time now. I really like those. Reels, uh, Nautilus, uh, I like the NDGs. For tarpon, I usually go with the monsters of Silver King, but yeah, definitely uh, Nautilus on the, on the reels line. I would an airflow guy. What else? Those are kind of my my go tos for What's, uh, equipment. Brand paddleboard you you use? A boat. boat. Yep. So I like the inflatables. I told my wife I'd get her one. I would say we could borrow one for a trip to Cape Cod. She said she'll get eaten by a great white up there if she goes out <laughs> on the paddleboard. You know, I've, I've had a lot of the hard uh, boards, and I like them, um, but for ease and convenience, like if I'm going to travel with it or throw it in the, the back of the car or, you know, you can even fly with the new inflatables. They're they're unbelievable. And, you know, I think at first blush you'd think, oh, they're not as stable, but they they are unbelievable. And they have all the capabilities of the hardboards, but they don't you know, get dinged up when you're, you know, trying to drag them on the boat or off the boat or whatever you know, on the shore. Um, they're they're fantastic. I, I love fishing off my paddleboard. There's so much stealth. They're they're unbelievable. And you you start pumping, you're like, oh, there's no way I could put any more pressure in this thing. But um, yeah, 15 pounds of pressure. It feels just like a hardboard. I mean, it's and they're they're like bulletproof, unbelievable. What other gears and necessities for you down there? 
I'm sure you got toothy critters, so there's some pliers, sunscreens. What, what gear? Yeah, like what gear is essential for you as a Floridian? Um, I always have my pliers. I have the big van stalls. I mean, you get what you pay for because everything just gets, you know, broke down so fast with the salt water around here. Um, so I, I always have pliers with me. I always have a, a pair of serrated scissors with me in case I need to trim a fly. I usually have a dog brush, like one of the little EP finger brushes. Oh, yeah, because everything gets slimed up here pretty quick with some of the off species, your ladyfish. And, you know, if you're catching a bunch of trout, your flies are just gooped up. So uh, trying to keep them combed out so they swim right and look right in the water, that's a big thing. Uh, uh, before we move on, what makes it not swim sure. right if it's gooped up? Because those are the things that, that's well, it, that's from your mind. Those are the things I want to get, like how flies swim and the design. Sure. That's later. So. Yes. So um, a lot of times they're just fouled, right? So uh, the majority of the material is on one side of the hook and kind of flush there. So fly, it, um, if the eyes are twisted or the weed guard's not um, in line, if you glue the eyes on and one's forward, or higher than the other one, that'll all make the fly either track sideways or corkscrew, or um, it, it just won't track right. So those are things I look for when I'm tying and when I'm fishing those flies. Every once in a while, every you know few casts, or if you get a hit or catch a fish, I'll go back through and kind of check the fly and, and readjust. What do you do for sun protection? Uh, I am Patagonia'd out from soup to nuts. I mean, it's unbelievable. I'm right down to gloves i i hate being exposed in the sun so i i usually have a hoodie on 70 sunscreen on my face and i wear pants and long sleeves all the time you'll very rarely see me in in shorts even on the hottest days just because it's it's so brutal on the water and i've been burned enough and i just feel like i'm kind of on borrowed time you know the the with more the more sun you get the worse it is so absolutely I had one thing carved off my face where my 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 buff and my sunglasses didn't cover. There's a little triangle in the corner of my eye, and they're like, "Oh yeah, it's probably just cancer, a little cancer." You know, when you got a four year old and someone said just a little cancer, it's it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. So it changed it changed the way I fish. So yeah, I'm I'm neurotic about being covered up. Did you ever see the picture of the guy who was a truck driver? And it was the different sides of his face, the left side that faced the window, and how aged and just leathery it was compared to the face that was on the inside. It's crazy. And and you see it, um, you know, I saw a photograph of myself, but close up, they were taking a shot of, I don't know, Costas or something, the logo, and I could see the sun damage underneath my eye on, you know, like next to my sideburn. I was like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I got to really be more careful. You can just see kind of the you know the freckles and stuff so mm-hmm. i just i i i love their their um capoline stuff the, with the spf in it so i would tell everybody i even wear socks on the boat you know it's as dorky as that looks i burnt the heck out of the top of my feet so many times what about uh, your leader material what's your preference down there do you build your own do you buy pre-made yeah so i definitely build my own um i usually have 
a few, a few spools of pretty much every size in my bag. I, I really like the Yozuri pink stuff and the top knot. You know, it just depends, I guess, on the leader I'm using or, or you know, trying to build or what I'm what I'm doing with it, depending on the material I use. But yeah, most of the time I'm fishing between a, a nine and a fifteen foot leader, depending. I'm uh, I'm I'm stepping them all down, blood knots to the and you know especially tarpon stuff there's maybe four or five different types of knots you might use on those but the material makes a big difference so and you um, said pretty Ozuri uh, pink yeah Ozuri i really like there. yeah i like the Ozuri. uh there's a lot of uh, good ones out there um cigar makes some great stuff for for softer stuff i like the maxima you know if i if i need like a softer butt section for you know tarpon or if i'm going to do like a a 10 or 12 foot butt section i might use that because it just it rolls over easier but yeah it's it's uh it's just i guess situational are you catching some of these big fish on your paddleboard oh yeah yep um it's a way easier and after after watching fish for a, a while you realize how sensitive they are in noise so in in the backyard uh, of my old house was a big basin, and I would get up on top of the, the dock piles. In the morning, you'd see those you know big girls like the snook that were forty plus inches float up to the surface, and they just kind of sun and kind of lumber around out there. And um, they're they're really kind of docile and happy until you hear the motor coming from you know the beginning of the canal, which is four or five hundred yards away i mean they're louder but you can hear boats coming as soon as you can audibly hear that noise those fish sink out and they just disappear they're still there but you'd never see them from the boat so when you see flats boats come in to the canals and these guys are up you know on towers looking around they don't see anything those fish are there but they they just they're so sensitive to the noise and the pressure that they they're not floating high anymore so what i find with a paddleboard is I can move really slow, and I've I've even bumped snook before that were floating because um, they don't feel the pressure wave and there's no noise. Just, it's just it's harder to land just, them. What's their reaction? They're like, wait, what is what was that? Where'd that they, come from? Yeah, they they spook and leave like a garbage can size hole in the water, you know, as they blow out. But yeah, you you'll absolutely bump into them if they're just floating. Because um, a lot of times you're you're paddling and you'll put the paddle down, pick up the board, and your momentum just kind of carries you, and you you, know, you still have a little bit of tide with you or something. You're cruising, you know, you know, not like a fast clip, but you're definitely moving forward, and you'll hit them or bump into them, or they'll before you do, they freak out. But yeah, it's it's tricky landing big fish. Um, I've had a couple of Sanibel sleigh rides this year where you hook a 36 or 38 inch snook, and before you can get yourself situated, they they have um, moved the the board from uh, and you. They're pulling you now, so the drag's not going. They're pulling the board, and if they go into the bushes, so do you. <laughs> So you have to stop yourself. Um, I'm, I'm getting better at pinning the board now or, you know, anchor systems, kicking a little mushroom anchor off the back. But th- there's a definite learning curve there of how to fight a fish from 
an inflatable board or a, you know a, a kayak or anything that moves like that that they can pull. I imagine when you they drag you into the trees, there's probably stuff in there that's going to drop down onto the board with all the crazy wildlife you have. Oh yeah, there's spiders and snakes and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, you know, I mean, that's part of the reason why I use the setup I do. Um, I use a, a short stick with an oversized reel and an undersized line. I do that um, so I can get way more leverage on the fish as you know, and get its head turned quickly and get as much line on the reel as I can before they head into the reel. Typically, once they're into the mangrove root and there's all those little barnacles and things attached to the to the roots, the roots. your uh, your your chances. Yeah, your chances go down real quick of getting them out of there, and the last thing you want to do is have to get in there and swim them out, which we've done, but it's just, it's not fun. Do you have a favorite non-native species that you like to target with all those other just bizarre critters in Florida? I don't know if I have a favorite. I caught bass a few months back. That was fun. I I hadn't caught one of those yet. Um, there's all kinds of bizarro fish like Oscars and uh, cichlids. Mayan cichlids are everywhere back here. Some some ugly ones too, like snakeheads and bowfins. They're fun to catch, but they're slimy. A lot of gar. The the ones that you aren't targeting are easy to catch typically, but um, they're just kind of messy. They're slimy and they tear up your flies. So I Our try. I try. Are super slimy up here when you pull them out. Yeah, you know, I every once in a while the boredom takes you and you just have to throw at one, but I, I, you reg- regret it immediately afterwards. <laughs> uh, how about any environmental things since you've been down there? Are things changing for the better, or the worse with Florida's ecosystem? Uh, you got to say that one more time. It kind of broke up a okay. little bit on that one. Anything um, with the I got, Florida I got changing an ecosystem? Yeah, any environmental factors that have you seen change since you've been down there? Uh, there was a bunch of big hurricanes last year. Anything? I know you're not on the same side as uh, the Indian River, where all that nasty water is getting dumped well, in. Well, we still get water coming out of the Caloosahatchee. That's that's where we get all the Okeechobee releases, and it drastically changes um, what we see as far as water clarity and salinity. So, yeah, that's that's no fun. As soon as they do start releasing, um, it's it's noticeable immediately. Um, and the and the fish are, you know, I don't I don't. It's like snooker. You know, they're, they can live in brackish water, so the fresh water does affect them, but definitely they, they move out of the areas that I fish. Um, the hurricanes tore up a lot of stuff here, but I think the fish are used to that, and um, they adapt to, you know, different the changing sandbars and debris in the water. I mean, for a while until that all kind of got flushed out, there was just stuff everywhere from, from the last hurricane. Um, Do you have, I know I think it was up in Tampa, I don't know about down where you were, all the water got sucked out and people were walking out a mile? Oh, yeah, it, it definitely happened here. We bugged out the night before and went to our friends uh, in Orlando. But, um, yeah, my, my buddy showed us pictures of, you know, the river that were, you know, we live off the Caloosahatchee and the same scenario you're describing, just unbelievable. And a, and a lot of the canals around here that were kind of void of water all the break walls 
kind of deteriorated and fell in because they, they didn't have that negative pressure holding the, the walls up. So, yeah, there was a lot of issues here, a lot of damage in southwest Florida, Fort Myers in particular, from from the last hurricane. That's crazy. I don't, and there's already a storm that's formed this early in the Pacific. Yeah, we we just put together our bug out bag, you know, batteries, flashlights, med stuff. And, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's just it's just part of the, I guess, part the of lifestyle. the mantra living here. Yeah, you just have to have it all ready to go at all times. Well, I want to talk about some of your fly time now. I've got most of my questions okay, about sure. the fishing done. So when, how old were you when you sold your first fly? That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, probably, like, like realistically tying for other people that, you know, weren't like buddies or friends of the family or something. I would say later, probably like, uh, in college. Cause I didn't, I didn't really think that it was like a, uh, you know, I wasn't doing it for, for other people. I was doing it for myself, and then people started to take an interest in the stuff I had or that I was tying. So I, I guess it took a while before I thought, well, I, can, I might be able to make some money doing this. And in college, you always needed the beer money. Sell flies, get beer. That's it. Right. Yeah. That's it. All right, so in the movie, or sorry, not the movie, in the book, maybe they'll turn it into a movie. In the book Featherbrain, you had flowcharts. Yep. For those who haven't, read or flip through the book can you explain your process of how you came about the flow chart and how you design a fly using those charts yeah so that was one of the hardest things that i had to come up with um i you know when i was when i was teaching kids classes um they'd always ask me you know well, why do you use a specific color or why did you pick a, a bunny strip over a piece of craft fur you know those were the questions that you know i got on a daily basis so it was it was difficult for me to try to to explain that so i started to lay it out in in a an organized fashion of why i use things and what do i use things for and the flow charts are kind of like what are they eating and where are they eating it? So if a snook is uh, up underneath docks or if it's, um, you, know, you know, on the grass flat, th those are going to, you know, are, are they in deep water or shallow water? Is there a lot of structure? That's going to kind of steer you in a direction of what you should be um Tying and what other attributes the fly has to have, you know, to get either deeper or float or needs a weed guard or something like that. The what are they eating is the what we're emulating. You know, is it a crab, shrimp, bait fish? And once we have those answers, then the flow charts kind of direct you towards, okay, how do we emulate that? What are its specific movements? If it's a bait fish, what color is it? What's its profile? Um, like a, a mullet would be cylindrical, like a carrot shape, where um, a white bait would be kind of taller and thinner. You know, have a wide profile would be a much thinner uh, bait. Um, so the flow charts were were designed for me to show people how my thought process and kind of get them to think the same way. And, you know, they're endless, but... Uh, I tried to put a few examples of each in those flow charts 
I think at the time my editor thought I was insane, but um, we got it to a, a, a workable chart that w- was small enough to put in a book. Um, and that's pretty much how it works. So, you know, what do you want the fly to do? Do you want it to float, sink? Do you want it to undulate on its side? Um, okay, whatever the specific movements are, um, how do we get that? The, how do we pick the materials and what color materials and, and you know, how much of that stuff to use to, to get the fly to look the way you want and to act the way you want? I hope that makes sense. That was pretty, yeah. pretty wordy. For down where you are, is it pretty much a fish, a shrimp, or a crab? Yeah, most of the time, um, I would say that's that's the lion's share of it. Every once in a while, you know, I'll sneak over to a bass pond and tie up a mouse or a, a frog or something. But most saltwater stuff I'm tying up is a crustacean of some kind, a bait fish of some kind. Um, you know, a lot of shrimp here, but yeah, that that's the the majority. Has someone ever said, like, seriously, how many crab patterns can you have? And you're like, you'd be surprised. It, it's it's unbelievable how many species of crabs there are in the Caribbean and you know subtropics where we are. Different variations, and I mean, much like trout fishing, when they're keyed in on a specific hatch or a specific prey item. The the better you are emulating that, the the, the more effective you're going to be. And a lot of times, you know, you change the color of a bait fish, and and that's what triggers a, the strike. And you know, I, I, that was kind of what made me write all that down. I was experimenting and you know playing around with stuff in the river, and I got on this pot of big snook, and I you know for days was trying to get these fish to eat and. When I switched from gray tones to tan, it was almost immediate. And maybe that was situational or the tide or whatever. But, you know, just just like any other, you know, freshwater species, if you are if you get the hatch right or the what they're eating, that's all it takes. Do you ever use that flow chart to try and get your kid to eat something? Because feeding <laughs> no. kids sometimes is just like trying to get an ornery fish to eat. That's it. You're constantly negotiating. Does it need ketchup or ranch next day? Yeah. yeah. The guys from Vagabond Fly in South Africa did a really funny spoof on that, and they mirrored it. And um, from both sides, it just led – all the flow charts led down to black woolly booger. That's, that's, that's all hilarious. it said. So I thought that was pretty uh, so your inspiration, is it coming from customers that are sending you emails or on the phone and describing what they need solved, or is it you going out and figuring out your own challenges? Probably a little of both. Um, my favorite ones are when you know I've got a handful of guys that travel all over the world that I tie for, and they'll send me a picture, and they'll say, okay – here's our latest project. I need something that looks like this. And they'll send me a picture and that's fun. I've done a few of those on Instagram lately, different types of crabs for a very specific fishery or, you know, like I just did a mangrove tree crab that was really cool. It's kind of a a diamond or a, a triangular shaped crab with like purple and red claws. They, they're one of the crabs that crawl forward. So you have to kind of adjust the hook and how the fly would you know move in the water and stuff so that's fun a lot of what i do is you know my own problem solving where you go out and 
you know, the fly that has been effective in the past isn't working now because something's changed. The fish are spooky, they're riding higher in the water and it comes down too heavy or, you know, they're, uh, they're moving slow or they're, they're not cruising anymore. So the fly has to suspend, um, just different things like that. Scenarios where you're, you're trying to, you know, solve a, a puzzle that's constantly changing. Have you ever had any really obscure requests for something that's just, you're like, what is that? You want me to do what? Well, a lot of times if it's, if it's too bizarre, I don't, I just, you know, I don't do those or. Tell them to use a black woolly bugger. Yeah. You know, a lot of times people want me to tie like just ginormous, like epoxy creations and stuff like that. I just, yeah, yeah. I just don't have the time. I have too many orders or whatever. I just, I, it, it's not a, it's not something I want to bite off. For the most part, people call me and say, hey, I'm headed to Belize or Hawaii or wherever. And they say, here's my budget. I trust you. You tell me what works and good luck. Does your traveling help that you've been to some of these places and, and know the water, quality, clarity, depth, the, the substrate I, color? Absolutely. I think that's a big part of it. And the other thing is, I, I like I said, I do work with a lot of guides in specific areas, um, and we tighten the screws quite a bit. I'll send them um, patterns that, I, that I've been working on, and they'll give me their notes, and we, we'll tweak them and send them back. That's kind of the how the contraband crab worked out. You know, I, I didn't like the Bowers crab because uh, a lot of it was um, – you know, bending hook because the, the the hook that was originally in that pattern had a really short gap, and the way the fly was tied, um, it didn't allow for a lot of room. So I'm never a big fan of bending hooks, and the raghead crab was you know another popular pattern, but it always looked like a, a crab that got like hit with a flip flop or something. To me, it just was flat and all the legs kind of shot out like a spider. So. I was trying to come up with a crab that looked more realistic with a wider hook gap and, you know, kind of blend the attributes that I liked from several patterns and, you know, fix the problems from or the shortcomings from those as well. So we started, I started sending those out to a few of my buddies and taking them to different locations and said, here's the deal. Um, I need I need your help on this one. I'm happy to send you the bugs, but you tell me what you think, and we'll adjust it as we go. And so I had boots on the ground helping me for a lot of, for a lot of my patterns and stuff like that. What are some of your favorite materials to use? I really like tying um, bait fish. Uh, is yak hair? Um, that that's probably my favorite material of all time because it's got doesn't have tips. So uh, it tapers really well. It's translucent. You can tie any size bait fish. Um, because it's a little bit more coarse than synthetics, it doesn't flatten out, you know, and it gets wet. So you can maintain a profile, and you can you can create flies that you can match the blends with. So for the lot of synthetics, because the fibers are so thin, you can't um, say, oh, well, there's 10 strands. And well, I get a lot of pushback in my from folks when they read my book and say, oh, you counted yak hairs. I mean, that's insane. But realistically, there's no way to teach someone how to tie, um, 
you know, how much, how much material to use, how much is a matchstick, how much is a pencil width, you know, like, so the reason I did that was so I could get, they'd get a, a good result from it. The fly wouldn't be too sparse or too heavy and they'd still get the colors right. So blending colors, um, with yak hair is, is easy because you can count it. And after you do it a couple of times, you know, I don't count every single fiber and every fly I tie because you've, you've done so many, you can feel it and say, oh, that's, you know, I need a few more, a little bit less. But um, that's that's one of my really like because the result, um, it's a translucent, very realistic um, and very durable fly that comes out of it. Is that what you've used your serrated scissors on your paddleboard for? If you hunt enough, you learn the truth. What you seek speaks a language and knows it well. That's why every Primo's call for everything you hunt is made the right way. We sweat every detail so you get more out of every hunt. And nothing leaves our hand until we know it'll work in yours. Because we don't just make the world's best calls. We speak the language. Primo's. Yeah, a lot of times, um, you know, if I if I want to take a little bit off the belly of a fly or it's not, you know, when I get it wet, if I miss something or, you know, I, I'll trim, them, trim those out, um, you know, make a few snips here and there. Uh, I like... Uh, rabbit strips as well I, I use a lot of rabbit hair and zonker strips because it moves so much in the water what else do i tie a lot with uh, i guess it just depends on what we're doing crab shrimp bait fish but those are kind of my big ones okay and what materials do you not like to tie with uh, i don't like epoxy that's um, all i'm smelling right now because i'm making a topwater garfly for somebody yeah, epoxy the head on, and it just stinks in here. No matter how careful you are, you just you, you're sticky. Everything's sticky on your bench, your tools, the vice, uh, you know. And if and if God forbid you don't mix it right, or the the, the hardener is old, or something, and you've done a batch of flies, and then they don't harden, and they're just kind of gummy. That's like the the worst in the worst feeling in the world, all that hard work for nothing. So, yeah, I, I don't use epoxy. What else don't I like? I don't like tying with, uh, I don't know, I'm not real big on deer hair. I don't I don't use a lot of deer hair unless I'm spinning bass bugs. Um, it's just so hard to get good deer hair. I mean, Hairline has awesome stuff, and I can call those guys and be like, hey, here's what I'm looking for as far as, like, coarseness or length. But for the average person go into like a Bass Pro or Cabela's or something, the t- you know, the, the quality is really difficult. So I get a lot of questions on that. So I, I just, I don't use a lot of the deer hair when I tie. Do you have a preference for a, like a UV cured epoxy that's on the market now? Instead yeah, of the- I like the, the Loon stuff's awesome. I use that flow a lot. Uh, a lot of the flies I use it for, you know, are, little bonefish flies and stuff where I'm just, you know, putting a, maybe a, a drop and letting it soak into the fibers. So I'm, I'm not really doing like shell backs or spoon flies or anything where it takes a lot of it. So I like the super thin stuff that gets into the, the thread. The Solar Easy, uh, the bottle's already rubbed off. It's the black bottle. It's got a liquid brush. 
and you just put a little bit of that in, and it just fills into the, the materials and fibers and hit it with the light. That's good stuff. What is it? Solar? Solar Solar-ease? Yeah, oh. solar Yeah, It's the little black bottle. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've, I've, played a, I've played around with a lot of them. And there's, you know, back when I started, I wrote Featherbrain. I did kind of a matrix on that stuff. I think there was, like, Clear Cure Goo was still in business and... Uh, some of the other ones, uh, I think it was like a Rio nonsense. I mean, back then there wasn't there. Most of these didn't, you know, really exist. And it was like two fly or something, but now there's so many great products, uh, on the market for tires. It's hairline hairlines done a fantastic job of bringing stuff to the market for, for in the industry. So I can't think we can lead that. You've got quite a few products with them. Yep. They're been They've been awesome. You know, I, um, Marcos is a buddy of mine and I brought a few ideas to him and we've kind of over the years brought several of them to market now. The, the crusher legs, fettuccine foam. I got some other stuff coming too. So, so with uh, the fettuccine foam, I saw that, in, I think it was a feather brain that you put yeah. foam in a pasta machine to shred yeah. it. And I was like, damn, that's a good hack. Yeah. You know, it's rulers a, and scissors all my time. Yeah. You know, we, I, I wouldn't say I at the time I used a lot of foam. You know, back back then gurglers were kind of the foam fly for saltwater, and I just couldn't figure out a way to uh, again one of these problems that I tried to solve. I couldn't figure out a way to get to these cruising fish in like May June in the river because they're so spooky. If you if you hit them on the head of the fly or even cast four or five feet in front of them. A lot of times they'd see the line in the air because they're in a couple feet of water and they'd blow out. So I needed a fly that would suspend. And, you know, all the other materials that were buoyant at the time, um, you know, just wouldn't fit the bill. You know, after a while they'd saturate and sink out. And so you couldn't regulate where that fly was going to be in the water column when the fish um, found it or encountered it moving in a, in a path. So... That's where this, the uniform foam strips came from because I could start tightening the screws incrementally, adding one more or two more to see how the fly reacted based on the hooks I was using. And, and that was the key. You know, the 12 strips of foam on the, that 2 aught or 3 aught hook, I can't remember at the time what I was using, I think it was a 3 would make that fly sit just underneath the surface and kind of undulate there and stay there. And then once the fish got close enough in range, then I could give it a couple of twitches and impart it with life and start to, to move it away, and that's when they'd eat. But, you know, if that fly saturated and I threw it 12 or 15 feet ahead of a snook that was cruising down a shoreline and it sunk, then, you know, they one, they didn't see it, and you'd try to make another cast before, while they were still in the window, and you spook them, or, you know, you'd spook them because you were trying to you know, move the fly as they're going over to make another cast in time. So anyways, that, that was, that's why I ended up using the foam. It's easier to count foam than yak hair. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Far none. (laughs) Have you developed any good hacks in your tying room that you could share with people? I like material holders for most of the staging stuff I do. And that's just a couple of one by one wood, um, 
like a dowel, like a piece of wood with some foam screwed in between it. And I cut some, some notches in it so it's like a comb. So if I'm tying with synthetics or feathers, you can kind of sandwich those feathers between two pieces of foam. And you'll see them in a lot of my Instagram pictures. I think that's where I got these. Yeah, I've, I've got one here uh-huh. that's made out of a broken pallet and some foam yeah. that I staple gunned on. Yeah. And it that, holds uh, it holds my feathers. That works really well. Um, a lot of times I will tape a piece of painter's tape in reverse on the front of my bench. I'll put, you know, one end of the bench, I'll, you know, take a six-inch piece of blue painter's tape, and I'll do that same the other. Then I'll tape the a really long strip of painter's tape upside down so it's sticky side yeah. up. And then I can lay out eyeballs or claws or something on the edge of the bench so i can go underneath and then paint them with nail polish or uv or whatever but then they're all drying and hanging so um you know if they do drip or anything i don't get it all over the other stuff it's you know it's it's uh, it's in the right spot so you get kind of a cylindrical shape if you're doing eyeballs or something like that but that's that's another one i use a lot um magnets I, uh, I, I screw magnets, like the 50-pound magnets, to the front of my bench. So if I'm trying to, like, whip finish or I need a razor blade, I always have those kind of stuck on the bench because no matter where you put them on your bench, there's always a big glob of craft fur or something on top of them. You never can find it. So I have, uh, <laughs> I have a lot of magnets. The, the other big one I use is um, I have a metal ruler that's uh, right on the edge of my bench and held down by the clamp of my vice, the C-clamp. And that's way more useful than you'd think for measuring feathers to make sure your flies are uniform. I used to have a cutting board that I would measure on. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I don't measure as much as I used to. Maybe that's why I took the green cutting mat off my table. I find now that um, most of my flies have a measurement based on one of the lines of my left hand. That's my ruler now. Um, feathers are typically the second line on my middle finger, which is, you know, or, you know, if I'm going to tie in a, a craft fur wing or something like that, or if I'm doing a, a bait fish fly, the stages of that fly are measured in by my hand. And I teach people that, too, because, you know, most of the time you're not going to have a ruler with you if you're traveling or something. But if you get used to measuring on on your hand, it becomes self, you know, second nature. Yeah, I've got a clouser for Cape Cod, and the guy made, like, a handgun, like when you're in, in seven years old and you want to shoot someone on the playground, and mm-hmm. he measured... That he's like, this is the exact distance the fly needs to be. I was like, well, your hand's different than mine. He's like, well, just take it home and figure it out the measurements on your hand. But yeah, he gave it to me and said, it's exactly my hand. I was like, well, that does me no good because your hand's not going to be with me. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, one of my first classes, um, I was uh, teaching at Bass Pro. I probably had, I don't know, 10 or 15 people sitting at this long table and i was explaining that exact thing on how to measure your finger and whatever and this guy stood up and he was a pretty big guy and he said well what if you don't have a finger and he held up his finger he cut it off in a boat winch he was a fireman and he's still one of my buddies to this day but i was mortified he started laughing he held up his nub and he's like and i my response was i guess you're gonna tie short flies but um (laughs) yeah 
<laughs> so I, everybody's hands are different. That happened to me in, in uh, July 4th when I was up in Breckenridge working. We were watching the ball game at a bar, Fatties, which I think is gone. And I just leaned over and I was like, how many kids do you think are going to blow their fingertips off today with firecrackers? And he drop, puts his pint glass down, picks up his right hand, and shows me he's got his index fingers gone at the knuckle. And he goes, July 4th, 1963. I was like, uh... Open mouth, (laughs) insert foot. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So how do you keep your time organized? uh, What's your your vice choice, your scissors? Okay, so I have a piece of foam. Um, It's an old arrow rest off my my bow that, you know, it's kind of got ten, ten slots in it or whatever, and I put all my scissors in that. And I have a couple of those foam tool caddies I use just on the bench. I have uh, some of those Oasis, like, uh, thread spinners or whatever you can hang your, your bobbins off of. Mm-hmm. Um, my entire bench is those big hairline bead mats, so I can keep stuff from rolling around. My wall, I have probably a half dozen um, on each wall of uh, those material foam material organizers and i put an eye hook in them and and so i can move them around on the wall but a lot of times i'm prepping materials so i can get those off my bench um as far as materials go i've got i think probably a dozen four drawer organizers from target the clear ones Mm -hmm. and and i for years just wrote what was on them in there but then all the They'd be all over the place, and I'd put them back. So I came, I smartened up a couple years back and numbered them. So, you know, now I know that, you know, Crystal Flash is number two or something like that, you know. Um, but that that's a big thing in staying organized is those drawers. Vice, I use a Dynaking uh, Pro. That's my favorite vice. What else for organization? That's probably about it for the usual stuff. I lay a lot of stuff out in advance, or I'm tying rubber legs, or, you know, uh, building claws out of chenille, or rabbit strips or something. So I'll, I'll make those, you know, one day for a few hours, and then I'll put those in Tupperware containers and then put them back in, like, the leg claw drawer. So everything's kind of organized inside the organizer, you know. What about the floor? How often do you have to clean it? We have a cleaning lady that comes on Friday. Nice. Thank God. It's my favorite day of the week. Otherwise, Orvis is covered in glitter and rabbit fur and uh, <laughs> black marabou, you know. Um, and, and he drags it all over the house. But, yeah, I, I try to sweep out at least once a week before they get there. Cause otherwise, it's like the floor is alive and it just kind of moves as you open doors and the and the drafts come, you know. Yeah, my room is. Um, I wish we had Rosie from the Jetsons that would hang out in my closet and just come out every time I cut something and it falls to the floor. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I used to try to do the with the you know put the basket underneath when you're trimming and stuff, but it, yeah, it's just at this stage of the game, I just kind of let the chips fall where they may, and we'll deal with it afterwards. That's like the way I'm in the kitchen. Yeah, that's it. You cook a lot? Yeah. I made Greek tacos the other night for a pool party. That was pretty awesome. With uh, caramelized red onions and a spicy dill tzatziki sauce. If I wasn't in the fishing industry, I think I'd I'd be in the 
the restaurant business. That's that's my real love. I, when I'm not fishing, I'm cooking or hunting and cooking whatever we shoot or catch, you know. And I consider, like you said with the deer hair, when I procure fly time material, it's exactly like what I'm doing for a, a dinner. I will go through, you know, I, have, I will only buy my onions from one store. I'll go out of my way mm-hmm. because they have the nicest ones or I'll go to one for... My wife said, why'd you go to five stores today? I saw the credit cards online. I'm like, well, I need, you know, I'm not buying garlic at that store. Their garlic sucks. Yeah, you get what you pay for, you know. Yeah, and I'll go through every head of garlic to find the right one. I know how that is. I don't just go to a store and pick the first marabou off the pin. I'm going to go through all those marabous. (laughs) I gotcha. That's exactly how I am. Anything you have discovered that you don't need on flies? We had a, a... discussion at the virginia fly fishing festival with a biologist and he said fish cannot hear the rattles that are sold for tying flies he's like forget them huh that's interesting yeah um so i never tied with him but those i would now leave out well uh what do i not use i guess um i don't know if if there's anything i don't use but i think eyes are a huge thing on on bait fish patterns or on shrimp patterns you know that um, the defined, you know, black spot or the, you know, a, a very visible eye. I, I look at a lot of underwater footage of bait fish, and that's even even in the clearest water. You know, I've got a really cool video of baby permit from um, Cuba, and they were in like maybe six inches of water, and I stuck my underwater camera down there just to kind of let it be for a while, and I watched it when I got home. And a lot of times you can't see anything but their eyeball. You know, it's they're completely translucent, void of color. So that's one thing that I think is really important is a defined um, eye, an oversized. So I, I use, you know, uh, those yellow, like neon yellow UV reactive eyes on a lot of my bait fish patterns now. And I think it makes a big difference. And you use the loon to stick them on? No, I use E6000. E6000. E6000 is um, it's a craft store glue. You can get it at like Michael's or Joanne Fabrics. It comes in clear and a few other colors. Clear is what you want. And the other one um, is make sure you get the small applicator tip. The other one is like a fire hose. It's like, it looks like goop, you know, that like shoe goop stuff. And then when you open that thing up, one, the fumes are noxious, so I try to do it outside so, you know, I'm not completely brain dead when I'm 70. But the other thing is it comes out so fast and it'll harden up on you. So it comes in, like, travel size where they're, like, the little tubes, and that's what I would recommend you get. Because uh-huh. after, if you're gluing up, you know, three, four flies and it dries out, you just chuck it and open another one. But uh, it's it's way better than any other product. When I was in uh, Argentina, the piranhas were just uh, unbearable and a lot of times you'd throw the big yak hair fly out and you'd cut you'd bring it back and there'd be nothing left but the hook and the eyes glued on wow to, you know it, it was just your, uh, your barracuda fly that's in the current fly tire is yak hair for those toothy things yeah but the, the inside just destroyed it yep yeah i don't know if i want to go where there's piranhas i know most of them are herbivores but they still scare me you, you broke up a little bit oh. there. I hope I didn't. No. I, all I heard was your flies and fly tire. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you've got the, the current fly tire has got your Barracuda fly, which uses yak hair. 
Yep. But they, the big barracudas don't destroy it like a piranha will? Oh, yeah. It's a one and done. You know, it, it looks pretty in the box. It, you know, it looks great when it hits the water. First strike, you're pulling back cat puke. I mean, it's a mangled mess of, you know, crushed wire and hooks and ditches. There's nothing to it. If you catch a barracuda on them, it doesn't matter what you do to them to make them bulletproof. They're, they're destroyed. They're, that picture of me holding the the fish and fly tire, mm-hmm. that cuda, I have another photo that they didn't put in there of just a pile of green yak hair and, like, mangled, twisted metal and hooks on the, on the boat. Because we went through, like, four or five fish, you know, catching different ones. We just ran out of flies. You know, you can never tie enough of those things. If you Anywhere there's bonefish, there's cudas. And, you know, I always bring a half dozen of them with me when I'm traveling because, you know, sometimes it's fun just to catch giant cudas. I won't pass one up. Yeah, for sure. Not a trash sure. fish to me. I say yeah, that now. I, I, don't, I don't get a fish that often where they are. Yeah. All right. What about uh, when you are tying? Do you have music on? Radio? Yeah, I, I always have music on. Uh, you know, once I, you know, you get in the zone, it's a heck of a lot easier to tie for five, six hours at a time. And every time I come down to tie, someone upstairs starts shouting my name. I said, if you want me, you come to my office. That's they always it. shot with the door closed. Get it. I think my family knows what I'm doing based on the the music that's playing in the background. If it's a you know ACDC or Rolling Stones or you know the old school Hank or Charlie Daniels band, I'm tying flies. If oh. it's uh, something something else, then I'm probably writing or something like that. But. Uh, yeah, if it's techno or ACDC, it's, I'm cranking out bugs. Well, speaking of books, let's move on to that. I could ask you fly time questions all day, and I don't know if the listeners want to spend all that time in their car commuting listening to my <laughs> time questions. So you've got 11 books, you said? I'm working on another one now. Um, I'm always working on something, but I, I've written 10 books. Um, the last three are kind of the the roll-up of my last 10 years, and it's bonefish, tarpon, and permit, 900 pages total. They're hardcover. Yeah, so we when we started it, it was um, it was kind of hard to, to see, you know, we were going to do one book, and that, that book was just going to be enormous. So um, in an effort to make it more manageable and from a workflow and, you know, sales and for everything, we had to break it into three to keep it organized. So it's bonefish, tarpon, permit. The bonefish book is kind of the first book in the series that has um, tips, tricks, techniques. All the books are written like a college textbook. So, you know, it's going to be easier in the beginning. You know, the techniques that you'll use throughout um, are taught first, and then, you know, it's as you get towards the end, it's more complicated techniques and flies and things like that. They're, uh, like I said, each one of them is, you know, roughly about 300 pages. They're hard covers. They're spiral bounds. They lay flat like a like a work manual or a cookbook. That was real important to me. Just so, you know, when you're working on the bench, you don't have to put like a, you know, a paperweight or something in the middle trying to keep them open. 
So they're really user-friendly as far as a workbook. And that's what I was looking for. I wish I had something like that when I was a kid, you know, that was really thorough, large pictures. We used the, the highest quality print we could get. We took them to a textbook printer. The pictures are amazing. I had a lot of help from guys like Jim Klug, who donated some really amazing photography to the books, and they, they turned out great. Uh, how long does it take to write a book? And then I'm sure as you're writing, you probably get an idea. You're like, I got another idea for the next one. Got to put that on hold. Yeah. Finish this one. You know, it's it's um, it just depends, I guess. Uh, the first Feather the Brain took me two years, but after that, you know, if I if I really knuckle down, I have a topic and uh, like like snook flies or redfish flies. Those are about six eight months. By the time you get all the editing done and photos and you know. Usually they're, you know, six, eight flies, step-by-step stories, intros, you know, interviews, stuff like that. But, yeah, um, about six, eight months. Are you up all night typing? You one of those guys? No, I was for Featherbrain. I wrote Featherbrain when Lucy was born. So when my wife was up feeding Lucy at all hours of the night, that's when I did, I guess I was my most creative was two in the morning but um now i'm you know i i kind of manage it each month like if i know i'm working on a like right now i'm kind of putting together laying out thoughts on like a a special species book you know maybe it's uh, like we talked about before with barracudas or off species that people don't typically target or if they do it's you know they're on a trip that's they're after bone fishing permit and they see one. So sheep's head, you know, barracudas, things like that. But um, I try to do my newsletter um, and write the and do the step-by-steps. And that forces me each month to write a chapter for the book. And then I flesh out the book with the interviews and stories and pictures. But the, the step-by-step is done. How can people sign up for the newsletter? Oh, uh, yeah, it's free. You go right to my website, Salty Fly Tying, and you just go to the, I think, Learn More newsletters and sign up for the Salty Fly Tying Chronicle. Each month I put out a picture on Instagram, too, when it's a, when it's free with a link. So if you're on my Instagram page, which is drchacone, you can see all my latest patterns and stuff I'm tying for other folks. And, oh, uh tips and tricks and things like that anything that i forgot to ask you that you wanted to mention that's about it i can't think of anything off the top of my head well hopefully this helps my listeners learn more about you as i've wanted to do yeah for sure call me anytime i'm happy to do this whenever or folks have other questions they can email me yeah i'm on instagram a lot um uh, or you can hit me on salty fly time for latest uh trips i host trips and things like that um destination schools so if there's interested if they're interested in books or learning tying or techniques you can email me anytime fantastic what are your uh, plans for the summer hosted trips uh we're doing louisiana um more towards fall we're going to try to do hawks k um in the keys uh probably spend some time on sanibel chasing snook but uh let me think i think that's about it for short short short-term trips in close 
I'll be at ICAST, though, if anybody's up there. That's not in my budget anymore. No go, huh? Yeah, I'd rather pay off the... Actually, just pay pay off the car and other things than to go down there. I can just sit here and drink beer in the afternoon. I'm usually uh, there sitting at a booth tying flies for for one of those manufacturers I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Anyone else you need to mention that you didn't to give out some shout-outs? I think I got... Patagonia, Costa, G. Loomis. How about Yeti? Yeti, Nautilus, Airflow. I think that's all the guys I work with. I love my new Yeti thermos. Granted, I found it in the Potomac one day waiting. I just cleaned it really well. But, yeah, that thing holds cold drinks for hours, if not days. Unbelievable. Yeah. I'll tell you, Yeti makes a chair called the hondo i think and they i don't know if it's out yet i i sat in it at the new jersey tying show um the, the the guys from yeti saw me sitting on some rickety chair and brought it over for me and that is more comfortable than any chair i've ever sat in so really? as soon as that thing's out i'm gonna get myself a bunch of those for the dock and i might even replace my fly tying chair with that thing it's like a folding chair but man they did it right how about that all right very cool I right, Jewel, thank you for your time. I'm going to go run into the city to my friend's pub and watch the England match. Hopefully it won't take me an hour to get there. It's only about 12 miles. Well, I'll be here tying flies. If uh, you have any other questions, give me a holler. And uh, thanks for thinking of me. And it was uh, fun talking to you today. All right. Take care. Thank you again for the time. All right. You got it. Right, take care. Take Bye-bye. Care. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. celebration presented by battery tender every tuesday in june from 7 to 11 p.m eastern join us for land management tips family hunts and conservation centric films as we show our appreciation for the great outdoors when you go out there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hawks cave Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.